0: Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com slash premium. It only costs $5 a month. Today's podcast is sponsored by Indeed. Indeed makes it easy to connect with your applicants. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. So start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. This offer is only good for a limited time, so act now. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Mint Mobile. If you hate paying expensive phone bills and you're ready to cut your ties with big wireless, Mint Mobile's got you covered. You can cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month and get a plan shipped to your door for free at mintmobile.com gold. The party continued on Wall Street this week. In fact, we capped off a winning week. With a strong day on Friday, the Dow Jones rose 424 points. That's about 1.27%. On the week, the Dow Jones Industrials rose 2.9%. The S&P did even better, rising 1.73% on Friday three and a quarter percent on the week now the Nasdaq was up two percent on Friday but the rally may be losing a little bit of steam especially on a relative basis because on the week the Nasdaq was up 2.75 percent which is pretty good but it was less than the S&P but also less than the Russell 2000, which was up 2.1% on the day, but 4.9% on the week. That was by far the strongest index. You got a lot of small caps there moving up, not the big mega tech stocks. The ARK Innovation Fund had a very strong day, though, on Friday, up 4.2%. But going into Friday, it was actually down on the week. All the gains happened on Friday. The ARK Innovation ETF was up 3.9% on the week. But it wasn't just stocks that went up. Gold and silver also had good weeks. Gold finished Friday up about 14 bucks. That's a 0.8% rise. But more importantly, we closed above $1,800 for the first time since July 5th think the actual close was 1804 that was the second week in a row that the yellow metal was up silver also had a big day and week rising 58 cents on friday that's 2.9 percent. silver finished the week with a 4.6 percent gain that helped propel the mining stocks to a gain the gdx rose two and a quarter percent on the day but 5.5% on the week so besting even the Russell 2000 The juniors didn't do quite as well, although on Friday, they did a bit better, up 2.6%. But the index only gained 2.3% on the week, meaning going into Friday, the juniors were down while the senior producers were up. Looking at some other markets quickly, the dollar index also fell on the week. It ended last week at 106.60. It ended this week about 105.60, so down about a point. More significantly, the intraday low was 104.6, still holding, though, the 105 support. We'll see if that support finally gives way next week. Yields were pretty quiet. They did move up a bit, and the yield curve steepened a bit. Oil rose about $3 a barrel from $89 to $92 a barrel. But more important than the fact that the markets went up is the reason that they went up. And the catalyst is supposedly the victory over inflation. In fact, Joe Biden doing his premature victory dance. I talked about that on my last podcast. Biden should be flagged for taunting, for trying to shove this hollow victory in the face of the American public. But we did get some more, not nearly as bad as expected, data on inflation that followed the release of the CPI on Wednesday, we got the PPI on Thursday, and we got import export prices on Friday. But before I talk about those reports, I do wanna circle back and talk a little bit about the CPI because there's a few points that I didn't quite make on my last podcast that I wanted to make this time, especially since Biden is out there just bragging and bragging about the fact that we had 0% inflation during the month of July. In fact he even took credit for food and energy prices being down in July except they weren't yes energy prices were down led lower by gasoline prices but food prices didn't go down too they went up now if you took the two together in total yes food and energy prices went down but that's only because the drop in energy prices was larger than the increase in food prices. And so when you look at the two together, they went down. But it's a lie to claim that they both went down when they did not. Food prices were up. And you can argue that food is more important to most families than energy. I mean, food is certainly more essential to survival. But not just did food prices go up in July, but they went way up. The annualized increase for food prices in July is 13.1%. That is the fastest pace of increases for food since March of 1979. So it's pretty hard to brag about how inflation wasn't a problem in July when we had the biggest monthly increase in food prices since the 1970s. That is a big deal. In fact, listen to some of these examples of just monthly increases in July, the month where Biden said we had no inflation. Potato prices up 4.6%. Coffee prices up 2.7%. Peanut butter up 3.5%. Chicken up 1.4% and eggs up 4.3%. Again, these aren't annualized. These are just a percentage gains in one month. The month that Biden is bragging about. Now, if you look at some of the year-over-year increases in July, flour up 22.7%. Chicken up 17.6%. Milk up 15.6%. Bread up 13.7%. And eggs up 38%. That is year-over-year in July. But Americans didn't just pay more for food in July. They also paid more for shelter, During the month of July, the month with zero inflation, shelter prices rose 6 tenths of 1% on the month and they're now up 5.7% year over year. Of course, what Americans actually paid for shelter is up more than three times that amount because the CPI doesn't use actual rents that people pay or actual home prices that people pay they use the made-up number called owner's equivalent rent that nobody pays but even that made-up number is the biggest year over year increase in shelter that the government has made up since 1991 and it's not just food and shelter that had big gains during the zero percent inflation month of july take a look at services Not only did overall services prices rise again in the month of July, but the year-over-year increase is now 6.25%. That is the biggest year-over-year increase since 1982. So while President Biden continues to brag about having no inflation for one month, most prices continued to rise during that month. What's happening is the big drop in energy costs is hiding the continued rise in the price of just about everything else. But think about the reason that gas prices are going down. I think there's two reasons. One is the is in a recession. People are cutting back on their use of energy. They're not driving as much, so demand for energy is going down. When people are not working, maybe they don't have to drive back and forth to their job, but they still have to eat. Whether you're employed or not, you need food to survive, and so the demand for food is not gonna drop as much as the demand for energy. But there's another reason other than a weak economy that is explaining the drop in energy prices What about the continued flood of oil coming from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve? In other words, Biden is cheating. We are artificially increasing the supply by tapping into the nation's emergency fuel supply. We're not supposed to be tapping into that when there's not an emergency. And prices going up is not an emergency. An emergency is when there's a huge shortage and there's no energy. And we need gasoline and we have no other place to get it other than the strategic reserves. We got plenty of places to get energy. In fact, if the president had a better energy policy, we'd be producing more oil domestically, but instead we're tapping into that strategic reserve. Well, what's gonna happen when it's depleted? What's gonna happen when we run out? Now we're gonna be in a lot of trouble because now the prices could really go up. And what happens if we ever actually get an emergency and we're in a situation where we need the petroleum reserve And that reserve has already been bled dry to artificially suppress prices when the only emergency was President Biden's plummeting approval ratings and the fact that a midterm election was coming up and the Democrats look likely to lose the House and maybe the Senate too. Well, that's enough about the CPI, which came out on Wednesday and which I already discussed pretty thoroughly during my last podcast. I want to talk about the producer prices that came out the following day On Thursday, because this also came out better than expected. The expectation was for a 0.3% rise in July, and that would have followed a 1.1% gain in June. We actually got a 0.5% drop in headline PPI. Nobody saw that one coming. The consensus went from a low of zero or unchanged to a high of plus 0.4. And we actually made an even bigger move, but in the opposite direction. Year over year, the gain was expected to be 10.3, and that would have been a full percentage point below the 11.3% year over year rise in the prior month. Instead, year-over-year prices only rose by 9.8 percent again i'm saying only these are still big numbers but just not as big as expected again this number came out below the low end of the consensus range which went from a low of plus 10.1 to a high of plus 10.9 and if you look at the core stripping out food and energy that was better too they were looking for another 0.4 increase which would have equaled the rise in the prior month. Instead, we got an increase of just 0.2, half of what was expected. Again, below the low end of the consensus range, which went from a low of 0.3 to a high of 0.5. Year over year core also below expectations. It was supposed to be 7.8, which would have been a drop from the 8.2 in the prior month we dropped all the way down to 7.6 again below the low end of the consensus range which went from 7.8 to 8.1 so this was more good news the peak inflation crowd are once again singing that song and in fact they took the ppi numbers as some kind of confirmation to the cpi numbers and they think that inflation has peaked and it's downhill from here And the important part about that conclusion for the markets is that if inflation has peaked, then the Federal Reserve can back off of its tough monetary policy to fight inflation if it looks like a victory is already at hand and the economy either already is in recession or if you're in denial, maybe is headed to recession, that gives the Fed cover to ease up a bit given the fact that the inflation numbers are coming down. In fact, we got more better than expected news on inflation on Friday too when we got the import-export prices. Now, remember, these are the biggest prices because unlike the CPI or the PPI, they're not highly manipulated using things like substitution or hedonics. These are just raw numbers and they are what they are. And so the expectation... Was for a 0.9% drop in import prices, and that would have followed a 0.2% gain the prior month. Now, that gain was actually revised upward to 0.3, but the drop in July was 1.4, much bigger than expected. And again, an even bigger drop than the low end of the consensus range, which went from minus 1.3 to plus 0.3. Year over year, the expectation was for a 9.4% rise. That would have been significantly below the 10.7% from the prior month. Again, we came out at 8.8 below estimates, but matching the low end of the consensus range, which went from plus 8.8 to plus 10.4. But look at the export prices an even bigger plunge there. The expectation was for a rise of 0.1, which would have been a much smaller rise than the unrevised up 0.7 for the prior month, we ended up minus 3.3%. That is more than double the low end of the consensus range, which went from a drop of 1.4 to a rise of 0.5. Year over year now, export prices, which were up 18.1% year over year the prior month, following a slight .1 of a percent downward revision rose only 13.1% year over year. So that's still a big increase, but a much smaller increase than the numbers that we have been printing for many, many months now. And I think a lot of that has to do with weakness in commodity prices because we are a major exporter of commodities and that probably had an oversized effect On those numbers. But again, I think this is a temporary reprieve. I think that we are not nearly done with this inflation cycle. I said on my podcast that I thought it made sense once we hit this 9.1% year-over-year increase in the CPI that we were likely to see some type of relief that the year-over-year numbers would come down and in fact they've had come down. But even going back to the, the CPI, you've got 8.5% year-over-year gain. On this producer prices, it's 8.8%. These are still very big numbers. The only reason they don't look big is because we're comparing them to even bigger numbers from the prior month. But if we had never had that big number, we would still be looking at this number as a huge problem. We would not be celebrating it. We would still be crying over the fact that the number is so big. It's only in comparison to even bigger numbers that these numbers don't look as bad. And the markets are using this as an excuse to rally. Of course, the other reason that the market is rallying is because we have bad news on the economy. And bad news on the economy is good news for stocks because investors care a lot more about interest rates and quantitative easing than they do about fundamental valuations or the underlying health of the economy. In fact, we got some more jobless claims news on Thursday, as we always do. And once again, we had another week above 260,000. The consensus was for 260. We came out at 262. The only good news, I guess, in the report is that the prior week's 260,000 job losses was revised down to just 248,000. Of course, that meant that the most recent week had a 14,000 jump over that downwardly revised prior week but it did help the four-week moving average move down a bit it was 254 spot 75,000 last week 252,000 this week but still holding above 250,000. Again, this is a leading indicator and it's not leading in a good direction. You know, we also got the Fed's balance sheet again on Friday after the market closed, and once again, we had another small increase in the size of the Fed's balance sheet. This time the increase was 4.5 billion, and so that almost reversed a third of the prior week's 15.4 billion decline. So the Fed is shrinking the balance sheet for now, but here we are midway through August and it's still taking place at a snail's pace. Now it's supposed to pick up in September. I'll believe that when I see it. and saving for an emergency fund. Because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to wallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. If you're a small business owner, your business is your dream and you want your employees who share that dream to help you turn it into a reality. Indeed can help you find those workers faster. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview and hire all in one place. Instead of spending countless hours on multiple job sites, searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find great talent faster through time-saving tools Like Indeed's instant match assessments and virtual interviews with instant match over 80 percent of employers get quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job descriptions the moment they sponsor a job according to Indeed data even better Indeed is the only job site where you only pay for applicants who meet your must-have requirements Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner delivering four times more hires than all the other job sites combined according to Talent Nest 2019. So join the more than 3 million businesses worldwide that already use Indeed to hire great talent fast. One of the best things about Indeed is that it not only simplifies the hiring process, but assessments helps take the stress out of the interviewing process too. Your candidates get to prove themselves before the interview so you can dive even deeper in talking about what's really important to you and your business. So start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com peter. Offer is good for a limited time. So claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash Peter. That's Indeed.com slash Peter. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. But the news that really excited the markets came out on Friday, and that was the consumer sentiment number out of the University of Michigan. The expectation was for 52.2, which is still not a lot of enthusiasm on the part of consumers And that would have been an improvement from the 51.5 from the month before remember we got down to 50 which was the lowest we've ever been in the history of this survey so the fact that the expectation was for a rise to 52.2 was a pretty low bar and it was one that the number easily hurdled we ended up at 55.1 percent which was well above the consensus but still within the range although at the upper end which went from 495 half to 555 But investors, I think, were very enthusiastic, especially given the fact that the greater-than-expected increase in consumer sentiment was attributed to a decrease in consumer expectations for future inflation. Consumers now expect inflation over the next year to be just 5%. Whereas the prior month, they thought it would be 5.2%. Big deal. These are just guesses, number one. I think the consumer has been consistently underestimating how much inflation there would be. And I think the fact that consumers have been fooled by all the hype and maybe a temporary drop in gas prices that the worst is over and that inflation over the course of the next year Might not be as bad as they thought. I think they're wrong. I think it's going to be worse than they thought. I think, if anything, the consumer is probably a contrarian indicator, not to the direction, but to the magnitude. I think the consumers are doing a better job on reading inflation than bond market investors, but I still don't think they have any idea just how bad it's going to get. And as a matter of fact, If you look at the medium inflation expectations going out five to 10 years, it actually went up. It went from 2.9% the prior month to 3% now, and that was well above what they had expected, which was a gain of 2.8%. And more importantly, the fact that consumers expect longer term inflation to be at 3%, that's 50% higher than the 2% inflation That Powell claims he wants to make sure long-term inflation expectations remain anchored to. Well, clearly, inflation expectations are not anchored to 2% if they're already at 3% and are drifting higher. And so that means the Fed still has a lot of work to do to bring those expectations back down to 2%. In fact, even though optimism improved in this survey, buying conditions did not. And in fact, if you look at some of the major purchases like houses, cars, large durables, they all remain the same near all time record lows because inflation continues to cripple consumer purchasing power. Also, politics may have played a big part in the improvement in sentiment because all the improvement was from Republicans and independents. Now, why are Republicans feeling a little better? Well, maybe it's because they feel more confident that this really bad economy with high inflation ensures that Biden is gonna be a one-termer and that the next occupant of the White House will be a Republican. And maybe they're also enthusiastic about the prospects of the Republicans retaking Congress during the midterm elections. On the other hand, sentiment among Democrats just tumbled to a fresh two-year low. So they really had to cherry pick this data in order to put a positive spin on it But of course, that's what the markets are always looking to do. They will always make lemonade, no matter how many lemons get dropped on their heads. Moving from inflation to the politics of inflation, Congress has now passed the Inflation Reduction Act without a single Republican vote. Of course, this is not really an act to reduce inflation. If anything, it will increase inflation. The only reason that the title is the Inflation Reduction Act is because it's obvious to Democrats that inflation is a big problem and it's one that voters are very concerned about. And so what they're trying to do is pretend that they are doing something about inflation by legislation. But all they've done is repackaged a slimmed down version of the Build Back Better bill that already failed and now they're just rebranding it the Inflation Reduction Act because everybody knows inflation is a problem and so everybody wants to vote to reduce it and so that's why this bill has that label but it's got nothing to do with lowering inflation. Remember, the bill spends $430 billion. You can't reduce inflation with a spending bill. You have to reduce inflation with a bill that reduces government spending but government spending is not being reduced in this bill. Now, some of the increase in spending will be offset by higher taxes, but not nearly enough. The bill is going to add to the deficit. And that means it's going to add to the pressure on inflation because ultimately these deficits get monetized by the Federal Reserve and even if they don't they crowd out private investment that might otherwise have increased capital investment and the production of goods and services. So either we get more demand because we have more money printing to finance the deficits or we have less supply because the money that's borrowed to fund these deficits comes from the private sector, therefore reducing its capacity to produce. So either way, we're gonna end up with higher prices, not lower prices, so the entire bill is a fraud. But ultimately, the greater threat to the economy may not just be the government spending and the higher taxes, but the more than doubling in the number of IRS agents are going to be out there shaking down and harassing the American public this is going to be especially problematic for a lot of small business owners who are going to have to divert a lot of their time and resources to fighting off these attacks from the IRS ultimately they may end up just settling and paying some extorted penalty because they really don't have the resources to continue to fight even though they may have done nothing wrong The result of this could end up being some businesses actually fail. Many may have to lay off workers in order to have enough resources to deal with either fighting the IRS or paying the extra taxes that get extorted. And of course, remember, in many cases, small business owners, the self-employed did in fact underreport their income. Maybe they did inflate their deductions because that may have been the only way to make ends meet. You know, even if they paid less taxes than they legally owe, they still probably paid a lot more taxes than they morally should. The government is already taking far too much money from a good portion of the American public, especially the middle class small business owners. They're getting killed with taxes and if they end up having to cheat a little bit to get by Well, I can understand that, I'm not condoning it, but it is what it is. And now if they end up having to pay those extra taxes with interest and penalties, it could actually be the straw that breaks the camel's back of their business. So their business goes under, all their employees lose their jobs, there's less competition, and then what? Sure, the IRS may end up extorting a little bit more money out of that small business owner in the short run, But it backfires in the long run because if the business no longer exists and the owner no longer has the income and neither do his employees, the IRS may end up collecting a little bit more tax revenue in the present, but at the expense of collecting a lot less tax revenue in the future. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if you learned anything it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them and learning about their service, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless services online only. They cut out the cost of retail stores and they pass those sweet savings directly to their customers. It's not that you just get low cost, but high quality too. In fact, when it came time to get a cell phone for my nine-year-old, Mint Mobile was the best way to go. For anyone who hates their phone bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless service for just 15 bucks a month. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying just for yourself or your entire family. And at Mint Mobile, families start at just two lines. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. So switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and have it shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com gold. That's mintmobile.com gold. Cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com. Now, there's going to be a lot of fanfare when Biden makes a big deal about signing this bogus Inflation Reduction Act into law next week. But you know, Biden actually had the opportunity to do something very simple that really would have brought down costs for a lot of people in America. And he decided for political reasons not to do it. Now, this is not a news story. I meant to talk about this before, but just other things have come up that have preempted it. But two or three weeks ago, there was talk that Biden was considering a temporary waiver of the Jones Act, not to permanently repeal it, which would be even better, but at least temporarily waive it given the fact that inflation was such a big problem and Biden was trying to do everything he could to lower costs for the American public. Now, of course, he doesn't want to cut government spending, perish the thought, and really reduce inflation. But one thing Biden can do is get rid of some unnecessary government regulation that is artificially making costs so much higher particularly transportation costs and what Biden could have done at least temporarily to ease the pain would be to temporarily repeal the Jones Act, which artificially increases the cost of transporting everything, including energy throughout the United States. So that would have been major relief for a lot of businesses and all of that would have been passed on to consumers so why didn't Joe Biden take advantage of that opportunity and this crisis to at least temporarily relieve the American public of the burden of having to pay for the Jones Act on top of having to pay for the higher cost of everything else. And it comes down to politics. And this is not just about Joe Biden. I called out President Trump when he too was considering a waiver of the Jones Act. This was for Puerto Rico and it was in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. The island really needed a lot of stuff fast and of course there weren't enough Jones Act ships available to bring stuff to the island. And so Trump was about to issue a waiver to allow any ship to help out in the crisis. But in the last minute, he was talked out of it or rather pressured out of it by members of Congress that had been bought and paid for by the narrow group of people who benefit from the Jones Act. And to protect this narrow special interest, President Trump, against his better judgment, he was ready to temporarily waive this act. But he caved based on the political pressure, which was very unfortunate because Donald Trump ran for office to drain the swamp. Well the Jones Act, that's the creature from the Black Lagoon. That is the swamp and not only was President Trump unwilling to kill this swamp monster, he wouldn't even give it a timeout. Now a lot of people may not be familiar with the Jones Act or understand exactly why it drives up shipping costs so much. So. I'll give you the cliff note version of this act. And basically what it does is it requires that any goods that are transported between two American ports, number one, they have to be transported on ships that were built in America. And there's not that many ships that were in fact built in America because of how expensive it is to build them here. And the ships have to be crewed by American workers. And there's not that many American workers who are crewing ships because of the cost of employing Americans to work on ships relative to the cost of employing foreigners. You know, that's why when you go on a cruise ship and you see all these people working on these ships, even if they're American companies, the ships are not flagged in America. And hardly any of the people who are working on these ships are Americans. But getting back to the Jones Act itself, there are several ways that this act, artificially increases transportation costs number one a lot of goods that get transported up and down the west and east coast a lot of those goods might otherwise be transported by water but they're not because of the requirement to use jones act vessels artificially increases the cost of using ships versus using trucks or rail and so what happens is a lot of goods that might have been transported on the water end up being transported on the highways in trucks and not only does this increase the cost of transportation but it's not as good for the environment because there's a lot more emissions when you're using all these trucks as opposed to a ship and in aggregate all those individual trucks are going to end up using a lot more oil than would one ship that was carrying all this cargo so not only would ending the jones act make transportation less expensive, but it would also make it a whole lot greener. So if Biden wants to do something about this supposed systemic threat of climate change, and he wants to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels, he would not only just temporarily repeal the Jones Act, but he would permanently abolish it. Of course, there are some parts of America that bear a disproportionate burden From the Jones Act and those would be people living on islands like people living in Hawaii or people living in Puerto Rico and that's because let's say you've got a ship that's in route to California from Asia that ship can't stop in Hawaii along the way drop some stuff off and then continue on to California. What it ends up doing is even though it has goods that would be bound for Hawaii, it doesn't stop in Hawaii. It goes all the way through to California and then it unloads the goods that need to go to Hawaii in California. Now those goods have to be reloaded on a Jones Act ship where you have an American built ship with an American crew and now they have to be shipped all the way back to Hawaii. It obviously would have been much cheaper if that ship could have just dropped off that stuff in Hawaii. But if it stopped in Hawaii first, it couldn't continue on to California. It'd have to go back because it can't travel between two U.S. ports. So everybody in Hawaii has to suffer. Now, it's even worse, I think, in Puerto Rico because the per capita income in Puerto Rico is a lot lower. So ships that are bound for the East Coast can't stop in Puerto Rico instead the goods have to be loaded off the ship on the east coast then reloaded onto a Jones Act ship and then they have to be sent back to Puerto Rico. So just about everybody suffers from the Jones Act but just some people suffer more than others but the only people who gain are the owners and operators of this small fleet of Jones Act ships. They make a fortune and therein lies the problem. I'm going to illustrate this problem with an example, but I'm totally making up these numbers because I don't know what the exact numbers are for the Jones Act or how many people benefit or exactly how much they make. I'm sure I can figure it out, but I don't have the time to do all the research. So I'm going to use a hypothetical example. Let's say you have 10 wealthy people who collectively make a billion dollars a year off of a particular law that's been passed. But let's say that same law causes the American public in general to spend an extra $100 billion a year. So the benefit to a narrow group of people is $1 billion, but the cost to a broader group of people is $100 billion. So the cost is 100 times the benefit. So from a purely economic perspective, there is no reason for that law. But from a political perspective, there is every reason for that law. And that's because the 10 people who make $100 million apiece have a big vested interest in making sure that law stays on the books and they're willing to share their windfall with any politicians who are willing to make sure that that happens. So if I'm making $100 million and the cost of keeping that is maybe 10 million a year in political bribes well i'm still left with 90 million dollars so if i gotta cut the government in for 10 percent of my take i'm willing to do it and so these politicians realize that they can get a lot of money for their campaigns if they help these people maintain this windfall on the other hand what's the political advantage to looking out for the 300 million Americans that are unnecessarily paying an extra $100 billion in costs because on a per-person basis, you're talking about maybe $30 a year. So if I'm promising to save a taxpayer 30 bucks How much is that worth? How much money is he going to contribute to my campaign to save $30 if I can even convince him that he's going to save it? Because most American voters have no idea how the Jones Act hurts them and what politician wants to spend the energy to try to educate them to maybe get a couple of bucks in contributions. Whereas the people who benefit huge from the Jones Act, they know exactly how much they make and they don't have to be convinced of anything. They're going to bribe any politician big bucks to preserve that perk. And so that's what's happening. That's why Trump wouldn't temporarily repeal it. That's why Biden wouldn't do it because even a temporary repeal opens the door to something permanent. And that's why this small group of people who derive an enormous benefit from the continuation of the Jones Act will not even allow so much as a waiver, even during emergency, as was the case in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. Take a look at the example we just had with the provision to substantially limit the carried interest deduction stricken from the Inflation Reduction Act. How did that happen? Kirsten Cinema demanded that as a condition of her support that that tax on rich hedge fund and private equity managers be removed from the bill and it was removed. Why? Because there's a small group of very wealthy people that derive an enormous benefit from that loophole and they're certainly willing to share their windfall with any politician who is willing to protect it. And so now you have a lot of very rich people who owe a tremendous debt to Kirsten Cinema and I'm sure she's going to collect. Now there's a lot of people out there that would probably jump to the wrong conclusion and blame the private sector for this. They would say, "See, these are these greedy capitalists trying to get extra money and they're bribing politicians." This has got nothing to do with capitalism. If it was capitalism, businesses wouldn't be able to earn money by bribing politicians. They would have to earn money by providing their customers with higher quality, lower cost goods. The Jones Act is not a part of capitalism. It's a part of socialism. The problem is the government. It's not that private industry is lobbying to have government power used for its benefit. The problem is that government has the ability to, to sell that power in the first place. That is the problem. You've got to take the power away from government. And if the government can't dole out favors, then nobody's going to be lobbying the government to have the favors doled out for them when there's nothing to dole out in the first place. But in addition to the Jones Act, the government tries these shenanigans in other industries too. You know, a lot of people might not be familiar with the rules for airlines, but just like Foreign ships can't travel between two domestic ports. Foreign air carriers can't sell tickets between two U.S. cities. For example, let's say you got Air New Zealand and it's going to fly from New York to Los Angeles and then continue on to Auckland. Let's say half the passengers get on in New York, then the plane flies to L.A., And the other half of the passengers get on and then they all get off in Auckland. But that means when the plane flies from New York to Los Angeles, on that leg of the flight, half the seats are empty. Now, wouldn't it be great for the American traveling public if they could buy a ticket to get on that Air New Zealand plane in New York and get off in L.A.? because now they can fly from the East Coast to the West Coast. Those are usually pretty expensive tickets. And those Air New Zealand planes are really nice. I mean, they're much nicer than a lot of the domestic planes. So wouldn't it be great for the public to just buy a one-way ticket on that plane and of course it would be great for Air New Zealand because now it can have a full flight on that leg instead of a flight that's half empty that may also enable them to lower the cost of what they're charging people to go all the way to Auckland because they can offset it by the fact that there's more people on the leg from New York To Auckland, but because they can't do that because they're forced to fly that leg half empty, well, the passengers who are going all the way to Auckland have to pay for the fact that the plane is half empty on that leg of the flight. And so Americans are all paying higher prices because of this restriction. But why? I mean, if the plane is going to fly that route anyway, it's going to be on the ground in New York, plenty of time for passengers to come on board. It's going to stop in LA anyway. Plenty of time for people to get off. Why can't Air New Zealand sell those tickets? Well, because United and American and Delta don't want the competition. So they're able to make donations to American politicians to make sure that American air travelers are denied the opportunity to buy those seats. And so, when United is selling tickets from New York to Los Angeles, they don't have to worry about competing with Air New Zealand or Cafe Pacific or Singapore Airlines or Emirates or any one of a number of foreign carriers. And so, as a result, American travelers have fewer options and they have to pay much higher prices. Americans would be much better off with fewer government regulations and more free market competition. You know, if Joe Biden wanted to see a temporary reduction in the cost of air travel. How about a waiver of that requirement? How about allowing all of these foreign carriers to sell tickets between two U.S. cities? They're flying those routes anyway. Otherwise, we're just wasting gasoline. All these jets that are filling up with fuel, they're buying the same amount of fuel to fly from New York to Los Angeles whether the planes are full or half empty. So, why not let the airlines maximize the economic efficiency of using this fuel by filling up those planes with passengers? The truth is that the politicians don't give a damn about the passengers. They don't give a damn about the environment. All they care about is their own reelection. And so, they're willing to sacrifice the consumer and the environment to make that happen. But I want to wrap up today's podcast with another example of bad government, this time on a local level, because I was talking with a friend of mine who just had his car stolen, and the car happened to be in New Jersey, and it's a rather expensive car, and it also had a GPS tracking device installed in the car. And so when my friend got a call from the insurance company telling him that they knew exactly where the car was. They had the address of where the car was parked. He figured, oh, that's great news. I'm going to get my car back. Anyway, the police in Newark drove to the house where they knew the car was, but they couldn't see it because the car was in the garage. And therein lies the problem because the insurance company told my friend that Newark has a rather unique policy When it comes to the retrieval of stolen vehicles. If somebody steals a car, the police will not retrieve the car if they can't visually observe it from the street. Also, they will not go after a stolen car while the car is in motion. They wait for the car to stop. So even if the GPS tracking can tell you where the car is while it's moving, the police will not make any effort to apprehend the driver. They wait until the car is parked and then only after it is parked will they go out and look for it. But the problem is if the thief parks the car in a garage, which is exactly what happened in this case the police won't get it. They don't want to go into somebody's house to retrieve a car. So if you're dumb enough to leave the car in your driveway or maybe parked in the street right out front of your house, well, then the cops are going to get the car. But if you just put it in the garage, you're home free because the insurance company told my friend that because the car is parked in the garage and even though they know it's in that garage because they have the exact address of where the car is parked, the police will not get it. And so we're just gonna give you a check for the full value of your car. I mean, think about that. They know where the car is. Why won't the police get it? Just get a search warrant. I mean, they've got probable cause. You have all sorts of examples of the police going on fishing expeditions and violating people's constitutional rights against unreasonable search and seizure but this is the perfect example of when you get a search warrant you have probable cause a car has been stolen it has a GPS tracker that tells you exactly the address of where that car is so what should happen is the police go to a judge and say hey I want a warrant to go to this address and look for this specific car we're not just going to search the house for all sorts of stuff if we happen to find drugs in the house we're not going to arrest the guy we have no reason to believe there's drugs there but we do have reason to believe there's a stolen car there because we have the GPS information that says that's where the car is so we need a search warrant to go into this house to look in the garage and see if the stolen car is there if it's not there we're going to leave if it is there well, we can arrest the guy for grand theft auto it's a felony and we can give the guy who owns the car his car back and now the insurance company is not going to have to pay for it but the Newark police are not willing to do that and so insurance rates are up for everybody because all these stolen cars that otherwise would have been retrieved are never retrieved. But also think about the moral hazard of this because now you have all these car thieves or would-be car thieves who realize as long as they can steal a car and get it into a Newark garage, they're home free. They own that car and nobody's ever going to come after them. So obviously you have a lot of cars that are stolen in the tri-state area. Where they all end up, they all end up in Newark because that's where you can get away with it. You know, as a matter of fact, there may be some people who steal their own car. All you have to do is have a buddy that has a garage in Newark, you park your car in there, you claim your car was stolen and you get a check from the insurance company. And then at some point later, you can go get your car and do whatever you want with it, sell it for parts. I hear a lot of these cars end up on boats shipped off to Asia or someplace like that. But the bottom line is here you have the police that are unwilling to do their job and as a result more cars are being stolen because of the moral hazard and everybody is paying higher insurance for their car because now there's an even greater likelihood that your car will be stolen because the criminals know that they're likely to get away with the theft if they can get the car into a Newark garage and if your car is stolen is far less likely to be recovered if they take it to Newark And so as a result, the premiums that everybody has to pay for theft coverage are much higher. But what is so outrageous about this policy is the very reason that we have government in the first place is to protect private property. But here, the government of New Jersey has abrogated its primary responsibility It is not protecting private property. So here is an example where the government is supposed to take action but fails to take action. The Jones Act was an example where the government shouldn't be taking any action at all and instead it takes action when it should stay out of the market but in both examples the government ends up doing harm either because it doesn't do a job it's supposed to do or it does do a job it's not supposed to do.